tonight. Before we turn to Hebrews chapter 11 this evening, let's begin with a word of prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you tonight and wish to express our gratitude for the salvation that you have brought to us, our gratitude for the fact that you have an attitude of favor toward us despite our sins and our many failings. Thank you that you receive us as your own and call us your people and put your very name upon us. We thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who was willing to not only come into this world and suffer humiliation, but to go through the greatest of humiliations out of the cross. And that he did this for the sake of the joy of our salvation. How we thank you that he loved us with that everlasting love, with an undying love. And we thank you for the love of the Holy Spirit that has brought us new life and has given us a hope of eternal life with you, has enlightened our eyes so that we might understand the precious truths and promises of your word. We pray that we might benefit from this study of your word this evening, that we might grow up in our faith and be nurtured in it, being able to more consistently and faithfully follow you. How we ask, Father, that you would inspire us by the truth that you set before us, to not only love you more and be more grateful, but to learn greater obedience, even as Jesus himself is displayed. Make our faith manifest in a life of courageous, active obedience. And we would give all the praise to our Savior and his name we pray. Amen. Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 39, through chapter 12, Verses 1 and 2. You can see how bold and daring I'm being tonight. <laughs> I'm, uh, I'm hoping I can make it through four verses. But they're really, really important verses. I know, you're, you're chuckling because you think he always says that, right? Okay. Hebrews 11, beginning at verse 39. This is God's word. Hear it as such. And these all having had witness borne to them through their faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing with respect to us, that apart from us they should not be made perfect. Therefore, let us also, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, lay aside <coughs> pardon me, every weight and the sin which does so easily beset us. And let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. <coughs> the author of Hebrews now coming to the end of what we call chapter 11, and again, Reminder, these chapter divisions are not original. The author didn't come to the end of something and say, okay, stop numbering those verses, start a new chapter. And this all runs together. But coming to what we consider the end of chapter 11, and the very fact that I'm trying to expand these two indicates I don't like the chapter division. But um, as he comes to the end of this section, he now makes reference to these all obviously referring to all of those that he's been talking about throughout chapter 11. And when you want to understand the architectonic of a piece of literature, 
You know, you want to see the overall grand structure of what's being said, which is often important to see why a little particular piece of discussion or uh, analysis is put in where it is. You have to step back and kind of look at the overall scheme of things. The author has come into chapter 11 saying, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Why does he tell us that? He, he gives this categorical explanation or definition of faith. Well, you have to back up a little bit, what we call chapter 10, verse um, 32. But call to remembrance the former days in which after you were enlightened, you endured a great conflict of suffering, partly being made a gazing stock, both by reproaches and afflictions, and partly becoming partakers with them that were so used, or abused, for you both had compassion on them that were in bonds, and took joyfully the spoiling of your possessions, saying that you have for yourselves a better possession, an abiding one. Cast not away, therefore, your boldness, which has great recompense of reward, for you have need of endurance, that having done the will of God, you may receive the promise. You know, we've spent a few weeks in chapter 11, but you know, when you look back at chapter 10, you say, hey, these are some of the major words and themes of chapter 11. And of course, you say, well, what do you expect? I mean, the Holy Spirit inspired this, it all hangs together. It does so very well. But I think it's important because there's so much packed into chapter 11, even the author seems to say, I'm getting so many details, you're going to lose the main strain of, uh, uh, train of thought. Pardon me. There's, there's really a, an underlying theme that I, want you, I don't want you to lose sight of, as I'm going through illustration after illustration, but time will fail me to, to tell you of all these things. But here's the main point. So we back up to chapter 10 and see, the exhortation has been that we will joyfully take and endure in the faith, joyfully take the persecution and the hardness that comes to us from being Christians, knowing that we may receive the promise. And there's this quotation from Habakkuk chapter 2 at the end of chapter 10, and then verse 39, but we are not of them that shrink back into perdition, but of them that have faith under the saving of the soul. And so here's the theme. Faith under the saving of the soul in chapter 11 is now what is faith? Faith is the assurance of things, so forth. And by it, the following people did following things. Okay, so you see how this all ties in? We come to the end of chapter 11 after all those illustrations. Now all these, the illustrations of faith, because we've just been called to such enduring faith to the saving of our souls, now all these had witness borne to them through their faith. The whole succession of men and women of faith who endured uh, in the centuries leading up to the time of Christ were people that this author says were well attested by their faith. I like that translation a bit better than the one that's in my own Bible. Mine says, in these, having had witness born to them through their faith, uh, the sense is that these people are well attested by their faith. Their faith was not defeated by opposition. It wasn't defeated by tribulation. It wasn't defeated through moments of disappointment. But their faith prevailed through every form of testing, showing that what they said with their mouths was not just shallow, talk, but that their profession was genuine. These all, having been attested by their faith, well attested by their faith, this sentence, if you understand, you know, all this loaded stuff, and this, all this 
theological force behind this now, and it's, what's all been built up, the sentence becomes anticlimactic. These all, being well attested by their faith, didn't receive the promise. You feel that? I mean, that's purposeful. The author has set you up for that, and he wants you to understand how important that is. These people persevered, and they didn't receive the promise. But the promise has now come. What are you doing falling back into Judaism? What are you doing not persevering? How can you not have more active, courageous faith when the example of these people has been set before you and they didn't have the promise granted to them? They did not receive what was promised. By translation, they received not the promise. What that means is during their earthly pilgrimage in this life, things didn't um, work out for uh, them favorably, and more importantly, they didn't receive the ultimate of God's blessing and promise. It wasn't for them during their time. We know that all the promises of God in the Old Testament look forward to Christ for fulfillment. The verse that I hope all of you have memorized by now, that tells us that is 2 Corinthians 1.20. 2 Corinthians 1.20 is a very valuable verse in itself, and it has teaching value and benefit when you're talking to dispensationalists, I think. Because dispensationalists tend to think, well, there were promises made to the Jews of the Old Testament, which were for the Jews, and um, it really has nothing to do with the uh, Christian church. These are earthly promises and so forth. And yet Paul tells us, For how many soever be the promises of God, in him is the yes, wherefore also through him is the amen unto the glory of God through us. No matter what promises you're talking about, however so many be those promises, they all look to Jesus for confirmation, for the yes and amen. All the promises of God look to Jesus. So Abraham, in the nature of the case, could not have received the promise. Moses, in the nature of the case, could not have received the promise, unless Jesus, of course, came during their, their time. And my point is, knowing that Jesus didn't come, the advent didn't take place in that period of time, all of these people fell short of receiving the ultimate of what God was promising, because all of his promises are made to his Son and are confirmed in his Son, Jesus Christ. So the Old Testament saints saw the promises of God from afar and lived in faith nonetheless. And again, the point the author's going to make is now that promise has been drawn near to us. And are we going to live any less than faith than they did? Look at verses 13 to 15 of the chapter we've been studying here. These all died in faith, not having received the promises, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. For they that say such things make it manifest that they are seeking after a country uh, of their own. And if indeed they had been mindful of that country from which they went out, they would um, have had opportunity to return. But now they desire a better country, that is a heavenly. And for that reason, God's not ashamed um, of them to be called their God. And he has prepared for them a city. In John 8, 56, remember how Jesus said, Abraham saw my day and was glad. So the saints of old 
had to labor under that disadvantage, that they just had to really believe that God was going to do things which did not appear outwardly that he was going to do, and which were not even in terms of temporal satisfaction close to their lives. They didn't have the great light of the gospel yet shine on them, Calvin says. How much more then should we who have enjoyed the fulfillment of God's word in this age be willing to give our lives over faithfully and courageously to obeying Jesus, even as the people of old did? And yet the author does not want us to think that the believers of the pre-Christian era were barred from enjoyment of the promised reality. He doesn't want you to think that they're not having received it means that's it. They fell short of it. It's not going to be anything for them. Rather, the author says, with us in mind, God had a better plan. There are some parts of the New Testament that are really kind of thrilling in terms of how they how these passages tie New Testament experience to the Old Testament. Example is uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter um, 10, where Paul is relating things about the wilderness wandering of God's people, the Jews. And he says, Now these things were written for our admonition upon whom the ends of the ages have come. Now we tend to look at the Old Testament and see it kind of like that book back then. Paul says, The old things were written for you, they're written for us upon whom the ends of the ages have come. And in 1 Peter chapter 1, Peter says a similar thing about the prophets. They couldn't really understand what they were saying because they were writing for our benefit. That's why. And now the author of Hebrews says a similar thing. But these people of old, the saints of old, God had something better prepared for them, having us in view. See, that's the end of verse 29. 39, pardon me. And these all, having had witness born to them through their faith, received not the promise, and then verse 40, God having provided some better thing, my translation says, concerning us. And uh, it, it's an awkward Greek expression, but um, kind of in what you would call the ablative or dative um, construction. What it means is with us in mind, with respect to us, God had something better, a better plan for them. And what is that? Namely, that apart from believers of the Christian era, the saints of the Old Testament should not be made perfect. That is to say, the salvation of God's people in the Old Testament was not fully accomplished apart from the salvation that we enjoy today. Theirs was always a salvation in waiting. Of course, we can make two big mistakes about redemption in the Old Testament. Right to this simplistic here. One is to say people couldn't be redeemed. You know, the blood of bulls and goats wasn't adequate, or even worse, that you know none of that superstitious stuff counted, Jesus hadn't come, so they're all lost. I and mean, that'd be a huge mistake. The other, which I think is probably the more likely mistake that we will fall into, is to think, well, everything was okay just the way it was. Animal sacrifices, they had a temple and a high priesthood, and you know, they did what God told them to do, and so they were saved. But you see, it was always a salvation in waiting, always a salvation by expectation and anticipation. The author here says they were not made perfect apart from us. That the salvation of the Old Testament saints was not complete until Christ had died on the cross and rose from the dead.
God ordained that they should not experience the substantiation then of their hope in separation from us. There's another important theological point I have to draw from this, and that's that when dispensationalists want to divide the people of God into two general groups, we have those who have the earthly promises of God, the Jews, and then those who have the heavenly promises, uh, Christians, those who are in the church, they do real violence to a text like this. Because the author says that the promises of the people of God of the Old Testament were not fulfilled and substantiated apart from our receiving salvation. They could not experience God's promise and, and have the substantiation of their hope apart from us. There isn't a Jew-Church distinction in God's redemptive plan. And yet that is at the heart. In fact, I would argue that there are two things you might focus on. I would argue that's the most important pillar of dispensationalism, the distinction between the Jews and the church. <coughs> Take that away and dispensationalism is impossible. Uh, there are a lot of varieties of dispensationalism, you know that, you know. It's not just 39 brands, it's closer to 39,000 brands. Uh, all of them have this in common, that God has promises for the Jews, Old Testament promises, and then God has promises for the church. But the author of Hebrews says none of that because those Old Testament people could not experience the hope and, and, to, and have the promises of God fulfilled apart from what God was doing for us. And so, there are not two plans, one for Old Testament Jews, the other for New Testament Christians. The entire Old Testament, well, think about it. What is the book called? The Old Testament looked forward to a superior priesthood. Chapter 7 has taught us that already in Hebrews. The Old Testament looked forward to a superior sacrifice. Chapter 9 has taught us that. Hebrews. Look forward to a superior covenant, the better covenant that's spoken of in this book. In chapter 11, verse 16, we've learned about a superior country. They desire a better country. That is a heavenly one. And so everything in the Old Testament was an anticipation of that superior, or if you will, that fulfillment of the promises of God in the ultimate sense. And they couldn't experience that apart from us, the author says. There's one people of God, there's one set of promises, and they are all focused in and tied to the work of Jesus Christ. And so the work of Jesus Christ covers all of God's people, past, present, and future. We already know this, but this is one of those verses that uh, teaches it, that when Christ died on the cross, that covered the sins of the previous dispensation, as well as covering the sins of those of us who trust him in this dispensation. Now, the fact that God's promises have been fulfilled in Christ does not mean that this age is any less an age of faith, however. Why is that? Have we seen everything that God promised come to fruition yet? No. We kind of, uh, Tony will recognize this kind of talk, but seminarians like this language of the already and not yet. There's a sense in which God has already done the work of redemption, and yet there's a sense in which it's not yet complete. Okay? We recognize that Christ brought the kingdom of God, and yet we're taught to pray, thy kingdom come. It's not yet. If the day is coming when Jesus will say, enter into the kingdom on the day of judgment. And yet we have the assurance of Paul that those of us who are saved have entered into the kingdom of his beloved son. So both of those features are there. Uh, I've used various analogies in my teaching ministry for it. The one that has, I think, been the most helpful is, uh, uh, you know, when you're driving 
to a place like Los Angeles. You can be in Los Angeles and not be in Los Angeles. Think about that for a minute. Last weekend, uh, my wife and I were up in Oxnard and we were driving back, and I was reminded of that as we finally got to, what is it, uh, uh, Westlake Village, I guess. Anyway, uh, it says Los Angeles city limits or, or whatever. And I think, yeah, well, I'm in Los Angeles, but if someone said, are you downtown Los Angeles, I'd have to say no. There's a sense in which this is Los Angeles, but it's not the heart of Los Angeles. In the same way, the kingdom has come, but not everything has been accomplished that the kingdom represents. And we do struggle with the life of faith in this dispensation, because though we know Christ our Savior, and we know he is risen from the dead, and he's ruled from God's right hand, we don't see everything the way it's supposed to be. Sometimes that gets real frustrating. That gets frustrating because you see, you know, that not the whole world believes in him. We see our country doing things which are very displeasing, abominable to God. We see the poor not being taken care of. We see the oppressed. We see injustice. We see that in the church from time to time, too. And so our tendency is to think, well, you know, is the kingdom really here after all? Does it make a difference? Yes, it does. And yet we're not downtown yet either. We're not downtown in the kingdom, although we are in the city limits. Okay, the kingdom's been established, but there's more to be done. It's not yet consummated. And Paul tells us in Romans the 8th chapter that right now all of creation is groaning, travailing together, looking forward to what? The redemption of the body. Okay? Christ has come and we have spiritually been raised from the dead, but we still live in a world, the very fact that our bodies die represents that redemption has not been completed. And so we live in a time of tension as well, and already in a not yet kingdom established that there's yet something to look forward to. So we have to keep our focus, even as the Old Testament saints did. And what should be the object of our contemplation? On what should we be focused then as we live the Christian life and try to behave in faith toward God? Hebrews 12, verse 2 gives you the answer. Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. The Old Testament saints looked ahead to Jesus, we look back to Jesus. Right? We like to put it that way. That won't fit this context, though. You know what the author is saying here? The Old Testament saints looked ahead to Jesus, and we must look ahead to Jesus. See, here, though it's not theologically inaccurate to say they looked ahead to salvation being accomplished, we look back to the cross as being accomplished, but here, that's not what the author did. His focus is, we're running a race. And Jesus lies before us still. The consummation is yet ahead. <coughs> and so even as they looked ahead and ran that race, we must continue the race. Verse 1 of chapter 12. Very unfortunate division. I mean, here the author now says, therefore, <laughs> finally gets to the conclusion of his argument, and whoever did this made it the beginning of a new chapter. That's a shame. I mean, literally, it's just a shame to do that. Because you know what happens? People tend then to jump in at chapter 12 and think, well, okay, here's the beginning of a new thought. No way. He said, we must have faith to the saving of our souls. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, conviction of things not seen. By it, the saints of old did, da 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 Now, all these, being well attested by that faith, did not receive the promises. For God had... 
with respect to us, something better in mind, that they should receive these things in conjunction with the fulfillment of the promises in the Christian era. Therefore, let us also. Two words tell you why this should not be the beginning of a chapter. The word therefore is the conclusion of a thought, not the beginning of a thought. And then notice that word also. Therefore, let us also. can't really properly teach this passage and drop that word also out. What the author is getting at is, in the same way that they looked to Jesus and ran that race of faith, you do it too. And this is a really popular figure of speech that's used now in what we call chapter 12, beginning of chapter 12. The imagery of an athletic contest, in particular, the race. Um, it's a dramatic image. It's not unique to Paul or to the New Testament, the author of Hebrews. Uh, it's found in Philo, very strongly used in Philo. It's used in the book of 4th Maccabees, so forth. Um, so it's fairly well known uh, to God's people. But it always uh, is rather thrilling. Uh, the author here says that we're in the midst of a race. We're the competitors that are on the field, and there are spectators that are filling the tiers of an arena all around us. Okay, so imagine you're in the Los Angeles Coliseum, and you're down low on the deck of the Coliseum, the floor of the Coliseum, and you have all these seats rising up around you. Now, maybe an amphitheater that Paul would have thought of, or it could have been the Roman Coliseum that would have been, you know, a complete circle, or oval. But uh, he says, imagine that that's the kind of race you're running in that situation. And then he fills in some details. Who is it that's in the stands? <coughs> Who is it that's witnessing our life of faith and the way we run it, the saints of old? And as they also ran, I mean, we also should run as they did. Uh, it's kind of as though they've run the race and now they've taken their place in the stands. And now you're on the playing field. You run the race, just like they did. Therefore, let us also, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. When I was a younger boy, that used to throw me that language, cloud of witnesses. Why cloud of I still don't know why this ancient translations do that. That means simply such a company of witnesses, uh, a compilation of witnesses. Let us also, seeing that we are compassed about with so great a company of witnesses, lay aside every weight and the sin that does so easily beset us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus. We don't have time this evening to look up all the passages uh, where Paul uses the analogy of an athlete. When Paul does that, he usually has one of two, maybe both, ideas in mind. An athlete is self-disciplined. Athletes discipline themselves, right? They work out. They get prepared. But he also uses it in the sense that athletes concentrate. You know, they're dedicated. They focus on something. And it's interesting. We have, you know, a lot of... Uh, sports psychology, and I don't pay a lot of attention to it, so I don't pretend that I have a great background in that, but what little, you know, snippets you get on the TV and so forth and around the Olympics, a lot of these trainers, you know, that's the whole point, teaching concentration, not just body preparation, but mental <coughs> concentration. Um, the author of Hebrews is calling this the same thing, concentrate on the right things, be disciplined athletes, 
I, won't, I have two lines worth of passages, just the references I wanted to look at, but let's just look at the one that probably is best known. 2 Timothy 4, verses 6 to 8. 2 Timothy, the fourth chapter, at verse 6. For I am already being offered, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord the righteous judge shall give me at that day, and not to me only, but all them that have loved his appearing. A crown of righteousness. When a, when a, ran, when a, when a, ran, when a runner ran in the ancient world, uh, a crown, a wreath, was granted to the victor. And Paul uses that in Jesus. Says, I, you know, I have run the race, I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, and now what is laid up for me is the victor's wreath. The author of Hebrews calls us to run the race too. And as we run the Christian race, he reminds us we're surrounded by a great company of witnesses, the champions of faith, who uh, persevered in previous generations. Think about the psychology of that for a moment. Often, uh, people who are in athletic contests do their best work when people who should make them the most nervous are present to see them. You know right? When the college uh, coach, uh, not coaches, scouts are there, or the pro <coughs> scouts are there. Or, think of this even better. What if uh, Newport Christian had a basketball game and Magic Johnson came to watch? <coughs> and the guys knew that he was going to be there. I mean, what do you think that would do to their playing? think they go out there and just do their drills and be kind of, wow, they'd be excited about that. They'd do their best. And the author says, why don't you remember, you have a great cloud of witnesses, Abraham and Moses and Noah and these men of old. But the word witness, though it's obvious from the context that it has to mean spectator. They're witnessing what we're doing in that sense. But you see, they're also witnesses in the sense of those who give testimony based on experience. Isn't that right? That's why they also ran this race. They ran it before you and now have taken their seat in the stands. And so they can give testimony to the life of faith, but they can also witness your life of faith. Uh, I know you're going to ask this question, so I'm going to try to answer it ahead of you. Does that mean, literally, that Moses can see me right now? <laughs> yeah, I knew you were going to ask that. <laughs> I'm asking. Please come tape over at this time. that I'm aware of that people who have gone on to glory know anything about our lives now. If there is any evidence, I think this is the best that we can come up with. And I don't think it goes that far. I think it's a figure of speech. Okay? And to press a figure of speech, a metaphor, or an analogy, to, to draw that big a metaphysical conclusion is probably putting more weight on this text than it can bear. I won't say it's impossible. Uh, maybe Abraham and Moses are watching us tonight, possibly. But I don't really think that's what the author's trying to teach us. You know, kind of the spooky relation between the two worlds, as it were. Okay, now how are we going to run this race before us? 
He says, by laying aside every weight. The word weight here is going to refer to anything that holds us back or hinders our performance. We could say laying aside every encumbrance. Would you like to share with us? No. <laughs> it must have been good. No, it wasn't. <laughs> okay. The author, when he talks about laying aside every weight, probably means losing weight. You know, athletes in training want to get excess weight off their bodies. But it also refers to uh, when the athlete gets ready to run the race, he strips down. Uh, in the ancient world, they usually stripped all the way down. That's not something we would approve of. But uh, obviously, you don't go out to run an Olympic race dressed the way I am tonight. You don't wear have your suit coat on and your button-down shirt and a tie and that sort of thing. I mean, you're going to strip down to something that's you know lean and mean, right? You're going to be lightweight. But another thing, athletes don't show up to run an Olympic race with leg irons on. You know, now athletes in training. My son, for instance, during the summer when he played. Uh, ball or when he'd be out running, would sometimes put these sandbags around his ankles, you know, purposely make it harder so that when he took it off, what? He could jump higher and run faster and so on. When it gets to the contest, you lay aside all those weights. No leg irons, no sandbags, no excess, you know, garments, no excess weight on your body, hopefully. You lay everything aside so you can run that race diligently. The author speaks specifically of our laying aside sin which clings so closely as an encumbrance to running the Christian race. The Greek word is referring to that which easily besets, that which trips us up readily. A variant reading in the Greek, which I still am not convinced is the preferable one, would say that which easily distracts us. I think the traditional reading is better, that which easily besets us, that which gets in our way. <coughs> now, commentators are divided over whether this is any sin, that is, lay aside sin, because sin easily besets you, in that categorical sense, or is the author referring to particular sin for each one of us, there may be a particular sin that is our downfall. And I don't know if you've heard it preached or taught both ways. Uh, I feel strongly, I don't have the support of everyone, but I feel strongly that second interpretation is the right one. In the Greek, the definite article is there. It doesn't just say laying aside sin that besets, but the sin. Now that can mean sin. Remember, that's the kind of thing that besets it. That's a possible Greek construction. but. Thus sin, and then a comparative is found. The sin which most of all besets you is really what it says. So what the author would call us to do here is to examine our lives. This is now what really brings you down in terms of your Christian faithfulness. Because that's the one you have to really focus on. Lay that sin aside. Put it away. Those of you who are at Lake Tahoe will recall I preached... Um, sermon that touched on this passage, looking to Jesus, and that was part of what I wanted us to get across when we were at camp, think about and examine our lives. What sorts of things ought we to be getting rid of in our life? Now the sad thing is we often will cherish our sins, love them. Though we say we hate them, we cling to them, we nurture them, we pamper them. The author says, 
like leg irons that get in the way of running the Christian life. Get it out of there. And then run the race before us with perseverance or with endurance. That word endurance has been used often in the epistle. Enduring. When an author, uh, well, there are some people I've seen, you know, Flojo in the last Olympics, makes it look almost effortless, you know. You know, she ends the race and she can be interviewed just like that. Hardly, you know, I know it's not literally true, but, you know, hardly out of breath, as it were. But for most of us, we know what it is. We're out there and run the race and we're in the middle of the race. Curtain, you know? And the author says, endure. Endure. You run the Christian race. Don't think that this is just going to be this real, you know, jaunt, this casual little thing. You ever watch some people jog and compare them? It's kind of funny. You know, obviously, some people are out there and they're really hurting, really, you know, putting in no pain, no gain kind of mentality. But other people, I, I get the impression jogging is a social event. <laughs> you know, it's not there to put pain into your body and so forth. It's just, you know, kind of having a good time, looking around, sort of thing. Christian life is more of the pain and gain kind of jogging. It's not jogging, it's running, you know, intensely. And he says, endure. One of the practical themes and Indeed, the main purpose, practical purpose of the epistle is to call upon the readers to endure in the Christian faith and not fall back. I've run out of time, but uh, I'm not going to let verse 2 go. I only took four verses tonight. <laughs> no, we only made through three. Now, I'll do verse 2 real quickly. It's a very important one. The reason for our perseverance is much more than just the veterans of faith. The author says, you know, someone has gone before you in this. Jesus is the author and perfecter of our faith. And you notice what Jesus did? He, for the joy that was set before him. Now what is set before us? Jesus. We look unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And Jesus had to live the life of faith for the joy that was set before him. He endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now set down at the right hand of God. Runners need to be intensely focused, so do we, and our focus is upon Jesus. Our aim is Jesus. We fix our attention on Jesus. Kind of like Moses, Hebrews 11, verses 26 and 27 said, Accounting the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, he looked unto the recompense of reward. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Keeping his eyes focused on the invisible God. And so we run the race keeping our eyes fixed on Jesus, who is not just the invisible God, but the one who has become incarnate, has come right into our world. And the New Testament has a great emphasis upon we touched him and saw him, the word of life. Keep your eyes upon him. The race of faith looks intently to him who is called now the pioneer, the author, and the perfecter of our faith. That is to say, he is the source of our faith and the sustainer of it. In John, the 17th chapter, which we won't look at, but you can uh, do it for your homework tonight. John 17, verses 20 and 21. Uh, Jesus prays for the faith to be given to his followers. In Philippians 1, verse 6, Paul tells us that he who has begun a good work in us will perfect it to the day of Christ Jesus. But Jesus is not only the source of our faith, the one who gives it, nurtures it, sustains it. Jesus is also the example of faith par excellence. He, for the joy set before him, endured the cross. Uh, I have to be quick about this, but what is the joy that was set before Jesus? It wasn't his own salvation. 
I'm sorry? That's right, the promise of inheritance. But you see, what that means is he endured for the sake of the joy that we would be saved. A lot of people, um, you may remember chariots of fire, you know, the, the offsetting images of the Christian, you know, running to the glory of God, and then this Jewish fellow, Abram, was that his name? Who was running for what? For the pride of himself and his race. Okay? There are people who run for the joy of their own accomplishment, something they're going to get out of it. It's pretty natural for sinful human beings to do that. Jesus didn't run that way. Jesus ran for the joy <coughs> that would be ours. To save us. Now, that always gets me. Luke, the 15th chapter, we read that even the angels of heaven rejoice when we're saved. That same joy which the angels know only in partial measure, Jesus knew in full measure, that's what made him run that race. And he endured the cross willingly. John, the 10th chapter, Jesus says, I have power to lay down my life. I have power to take it up again. No one takes it from me. That's why it was so silly, really silly of Peter to take a sword and try to defend Jesus. Jesus says, Peter, don't you know I could call legions of angels to deliver me? I don't need this. I'm going to the cross because I choose to go to the cross. And so he endured the cross willingly. Um, I want to remind you that the cross represented the most disgraceful and humiliating death imaginable in the ancient world. The Roman Empire, nothing was worse than the death of the cross. Nothing. That's why by Roman law, only the basest of criminals, only social outcasts could be crucified. And no Roman citizen could be crucified. We have accounts. Cicero talks about uh, a person who was set in charge over Sicily who got in a lot of trouble. I mean, big trouble with the Roman high command because he dared to crucify someone without asking whether they were a Roman citizen or not. No one in the Roman Empire that had the dignity of being a citizen would have to undergo that case a treatment to be crucified. And so it shouldn't surprise you that the author of Hebrews doesn't focus upon the pain of the cross. He focuses upon the shame of the cross. Many people have undergone the pain I remember when I was in um, uh, at Westmont College, a chapel speaker saying something which at first kind of you know was off-putting to me. I didn't like what he said, but you know, the more I thought about it, it was true. He he said, you know, a lot of our preachers focus upon the agony of Jesus, physical agony, what it meant to have nails go through his hands and you know, to be beaten with whips, and all of which is true. But he says, you know, that misses the point. It's not the physical pain Jesus went through. And what he said is that offended me. He said there are people who have died in Vietnam that have gone through more physical pain than that. People who died through napalm bombing and so forth. They've gone through more agony than Jesus did. But you see what he was trying to say? He was trying to make the point that I'm making now. I, I really agree with it. It's not the pain, the physical pain of the cross that was important. It was the shame that he went through. That he died a criminal's death. And above all, others have died a criminal's death. But they deserved it. This was the righteous dying for the unrighteous. And for the joy that he would receive in seeing us saved, he endured the cross and despised the shame. He said, it means nothing to me that I should go through that shame for the joy of seeing you saved. The message of the cross is crucial to Christianity. Remember how Paul says in 1 Corinthians 2, verse 2, I've determined to know nothing among you but Christ 
and him crucified. The New English Bible, to know nothing but Christ, a Christ nailed to a cross. Crucial to Christianity, and I'll just say in quick closing here, I'm afraid that in our day and age of not only easy believism, but of easy Christianity, we've gotten away from a Christianity that talks about a suffering Savior. We're interested in God giving us all of our desires and making us happy and that sort of thing. But um, for Jesus, the cross was the gateway to the crown. He despised the shame at the right hand of God. And not only is the cross the gateway to the crown for Jesus, it is for us too. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for its inspiring message to us. We thank you for the message that is so gratifying to us. We thank you for your Son, who for reasons which are beyond our human comprehension would find joy in enduring the cross that we should belong to you. We thank you for that, Father. We thank you for the mercy you display, and we pray that we would be inspired not only by the...